Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds for April 23rd, 2014. And um, um, I'm glad to be back after a week away. I was up at UVM a couple weeks ago. That's right, a couple weeks. So I have a couple of announcements. Notice I'm wearing my white coat. That's a reminder to myself and to everybody that we immediately after this will go up to the atrium on the fifth floor for our annual faculty and resident photo shoot. So we'll walk up together, hopefully, and take our pictures. And that takes care of one reminder. Another important reminder is next Monday afternoon at noon, we're going to have a nice opportunity to review and see folks' posters. We have at least a dozen posters that are presented at PIS in a couple weeks in Vancouver. So our departmental posters will be hanging in a, a reception setting to allow us to celebrate learning, celebrate education, recognize um, some of our most dedicated and finest teachers with a, a sort of a appetizer, finger food, um, catered luncheon. So that's up on the Reuben sixth floor atrium. So have some natural light, hopefully, and a nice setting to celebrate that 12 to 1.30 next Monday afternoon, the 28th at midday, uh, remarks at 12.30, correct? And next week, we continue our resident graduating resident Grand Round series where Janelle Ladone is presenting. Is Janelle here? We have a topic to be determined. She's on vacation this week. Do we know what the topic is? She's going to discuss the guidelines. guidelines. Guidelines, excellent. So we, we have we, we have we have well qualified and ambitious uh, residents. Dr. Zubrow's objectives, if you read the announcement today, include at the end of the presentation the attendee will be able to discuss the future of medical education. So <laughs> in one hour, that's going to be an impressive feat because I'm sure Kim could spend about three days trying to get that into our heads. But but we're very excited to have Michael here. Mike is an excellent excellent at simplifying things and. And um, is a graduating resident uh, who comes to us uh, from Stony Brook University School of Medicine, uh, starting his residency in 2011 after being at Vassar College, where he received honors uh, for excellence in research. Already had created a pretty impressive research portfolio and a CV with first author publications in the uh, Journal of the American College of Cardiology, and is going to uh, talk not about research today, but again, as has a passion now in education and, and some scholarly activity around that. So without further ado, I welcome Michael Lee Zubrow to the podium. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, perfect. So the topic of my uh, discussion today is what I titled the learning curve. Um, and it's a basic discussion of how we go about teaching procedures. Um, I don't have anything to disclose, so I just exist on my resident salary. <laughs> so I'm going to start off with a couple of stories um, about similarities between making peanut butter and jelly and performing my first lumbar puncture. So when I was a high school student, um, the first day of a course of, on computer science, our uh, instructor asked us to write instructions for a robot on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, it's actually a lot harder than you would think, um, and we did really, really poorly with it. Um, so we would write things like stick knife in peanut butter container, and he would go to do it. He would act out what we were trying to do, 
and he would be jabbing a knife in a closed peanut butter container because we hadn't given that specific instruction. Um, when you would go to put the peanut butter in the bread, we didn't give any sort of measure of force, so he would pretty much eviscerate the bread. Um, so obviously, humans are robots, but we kind of go about doing things in a very similar way. We go through kind of a motor planning checklist. Um, and when you're inexperienced, when you're nervous, you forget to do things. Um, for example, my first lumbar puncture uh, was when I was a third-year medical student. And when you're a third-year medical student and you're asked to do a procedure, you're like, yes! It's like Christmas, your birthday, kind of everything rolled into one. Um, so I kind of, I'd seen one, I'd watched a video on one, but I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, so I went to set things up. Um, I thought that I had set everything up, and we were doing this lumbar puncture to see if this young girl had uh, pseudotumor cerebri. Um, I forgot the manometer altogether. Um, when I was doing things, um, I almost forgot to give local anesthesia, so it was pretty much a disaster. Um, but it was a good lesson, and it made me think of this um, kind of computer science lesson about the whole process of doing things. So in terms of what we're going to cover today, um, we're going to briefly go through the history of medical procedural training. Um, we'll go through how we currently teach procedures and how we currently define competence. Um, we'll subsequently go through um, what I've been doing for the last three years, which is the Dartmouth Procedure Project. And then, um, as Keith mentioned, a very lofty goal is where does medical education go from here? So in terms of the history of medical education, um, Prior to 1890, it's what I lovingly call the Dark Ages. Um, so um, medical students would go through three years of um, what was termed medical school at that point, followed by one or two years of serving as uh, what was called hospital intern and then house physician. And I put supervision in quotes there because really there wasn't a whole lot of supervision. People were mostly acting on their own. Um, and then people were either ready to start practice or if they were wealthy enough, they would go to Europe for actual medical training. Um, so all this changed around 1890 when the first residency programs were established. And these are two gentlemen here, William Ostler and William Halstead, um, who established the first both medicine and surgery residency programs at Johns Hopkins. Um, and things were very different then than they are now. So trainees would live at the hospital. They would routinely work somewhere between 110 and 130 hours a week. They weren't allowed to get married. They had to be immediately available on call. Um, and their training programs running for anywhere from about six to eight years. Um, and it was a little bit like a game of Survivor, where the number of trainees that started the program were not the same as the number that graduated. So there would be um, a dropout each year. Um, and in terms of medical education as a whole, it changed around 1910 as well when the Flexner Report came out. Um, at that point in time, there were somewhere around 150 or 200 medical schools. Um, and this report detailed a lot of um, changes um, that needed to happen in medical education. And subsequently, about half of the training or half of the um, medical education programs in the country closed. So how things worked um, in terms of early medical education was this idea of the medical theater. So you would watch how things were done by experienced physicians. You would take notes. You would kind of learn based on seeing. Um, and as be you became more and more experienced, you would be the one that was in the kind of circle of uh, observation there. Um, but as you can see, some of those seats are very high up, and I don't know if I would trust my vision from that far away. Uh, and the idea behind this is this idea of the mirror neuron system. So you have these cells in the brain called mirror neurons that fire when you see actions performed. So as you can see here, there's a human examiner sticking their tongue out at a baby monkey here, and the baby monkey subsequently sticks their tongue back out. So these 
Um, neurons allow you to mimic the actions that are going on. Um, and they also understand the intention behind um, these individual actions. Um, the strength of activation, though, is higher when you observe and imitate um, as opposed to just observing. So um, the idea of this entire apprenticeship model was that you would see one, you would do one, and then you would subsequently be able to teach one. Um, the problem with this model is that learning comes from experience, but experience often comes from making mistakes. So it's not really a safe way to go about doing things. Um, the ability to teach something also requires that you be good at doing something. And again, there's kind of no um, way of easily defining it with this system. Um, so how you currently decide when somebody's good, when somebody's ready, um, the way of doing it right now is that after three years of residency, you're pretty much good to go. There's no additional assessment required. So it's just really a time-based evaluation. During that period of time, residency program directors are asked to kind of certify that you're ready. Uh, and they don't really have the best tools for doing so. So they have evaluations by attendings that maybe or maybe not have seen you do these procedures. And then they have procedure logs as well. So the idea of the procedure log kind of, again, is this apprenticeship model. The more you do something, the better you, in theory, get at it. Um, and the ACGME has asked residents to, I put voluntary uh, and underlines here to really emphasize that point, that they ask you to log procedures as a way of helping program directors mark you as being competent in doing them. The problems with this are several. So the first problem is that experience is not necessarily everything. Um, so this is Dwight Howard. Uh, he's an NBA all-star. He shot probably about 7,000 free throws in terms of his career. Um, and he's probably shot many more thousand than that in terms of practice. Um, that being said, just having done a number of them doesn't obviously make you proficient at doing them. Um, the second problem is, in using these procedure logs, we really don't know how good people are at actually logging them. It, again, depends on voluntary. Um, it depends on residents doing them themselves. And there's a lot of other time constraints. So there was a study that was done at UC Irvine about 15 years ago um, looking at how good residents are uh, at logging their procedures. And they made comparisons between the number of procedures that residents logged, and then they went back and did chart reviews um, to try and call them on any procedures that they didn't log. Um, and on average, they logged somewhere around 50 or 60% of their procedures. But again, there was huge variability. Some people logged 20% of their procedures, and some people logged 100% of their procedures. The other thing that this study showed, and this is in 1998, is that a lot of residents weren't even getting single um, attempts at doing what they called critical procedures. So for emergency room residents, that was um, deliveries, that was IO placement, that was pericardiosynthesis. And these are things that they would be expected to know how to do um, serving as emergency medicine attendings. So um, we, over the last three years, have been doing a project um, kind of asking similar questions. Um, one of the impetuses for this project was um, the overall kind of general dissatisfaction with the current logging system. So um, the ACGME has a logging site. Um, but a lot of people are complaining that it takes a very, very long time to, to log a single procedure because you have to search it by billing code, which takes a very long time. Um, so the question that we were asking was, given that the current standard that we have is 50 or 60% logging, if we were to simplify um, the way of logging, would it make it both easier to log procedures and could we get a better um, kind of procedural logging rate? 
Um, the other thing that we wanted to do with this project was to start to measure success rates to see if, um, if people were doing more, um, whether there was some correlation um, with increased success rates. So this is a sample logging form here. Um, and as you can see, it's pretty simple. Um, everybody just has a link to a, a website here. They essentially just have to plug in their initials, the age of the patient, the date they did it, and then find the procedure that they did, um, and then say whether it was successful or not. So in theory, it's pretty simple. You don't have to search through any sort of database um, to find things. Um, and we were hopeful that using this new logging system, um, people would be more satisfied. They would start to actually log more procedures. And we would start to see some higher percentages of procedures that they were logging. And we did this um, in terms of comparison. We did two years before and two years after this new logging system. Uh, the secondary question that we were looking at is, given that we could measure success rates, are there other factors that play into this? Um, as I mentioned, if you perform more procedures, um, are you more likely to be successful in doing them? Um, another question would be, if it's been a long time since you've done a procedure, are you less likely to be successful? And then um, the third question that we asked is, if you're a senior resident versus an intern, are you more likely to be able to successfully complete a procedure? So taking these questions one at a time, in terms of the time it takes to log procedures, um, as you can see here, the x-axis is time, and the y-axis is the percentage of respondents here. Um, the old system is in blue and the new system is in red. So you see fairly stark differences in terms of the amount of time it takes um, to log procedures. So somewhere around 95% or so of um, people were taking less than two minutes to log um, procedures using the new system, whereas the old system people were taking mostly two to five minutes, but a significant proportion were still taking upwards of five minutes. So that's a significant amount of time to ask somebody to spend to log a single procedure. Um, in terms of the satisfaction with the logging system, uh, as you can see here, uh, people were fairly unsatisfied with the old system. So um, most, there's actually very little overlap in terms of the two colors here. Um, the Google system, which is the new system, um, people were generally satisfied. And it's on a one to five scale with five being the most satisfied. In terms of the percentage of procedures that people are logging, um, again, same color scheme, and the x-axis here would be quartiles for the percentage of procedures logged. Um, so as you can see here, with the old system, people were generally not very good at logging, even worse than the old data says. So um, basically, about 2 thirds of people were logging between 25 and 50% of their procedures, which makes it a really poor um, estimate. Um, using the new system, still not incredible, but certainly um, improved from where it was. with a a significant proportion, probably about 35, 40% of people logging uh, between 75 and 100% of their procedures. So this seems great. Um, in theory, people seem to like it more. They're spending less time logging their procedures. Um, we're not at 100%, but it's still an improvement. Um, and you would think that we would see more procedures logged. Um, unfortunately, that did not seem to be the case. So <laughs> again, you have your procedures on the x-axis. And we broke it down by total procedures. The second column there is lumbar punctures. The third column is intubations. The fourth column is peripheral IVs. <coughs> and so among these groups, there really aren't any significant differences. Um, so again, this goes back to this theory of voluntary logging um, and whether this system will work at all. Um, in terms of thinking through explanations, um, is there a possibility that we're just doing fewer procedures over time and that we're better capturing them with the new system? 
Um, or is it just that people like the new system better and this just represents a degree of recall bias? Um, so what we did to try and get at this question was we made a comparison of procedures billed per year um, during the study period. Um, and we did this among the total procedures. We did this among LPs, intubations, peripheral IVs. And there weren't any big differences in terms of the numbers of procedures billed for over that time period. Um, that being said, it's a very blunt instrument. Um, it's not getting at just procedures that residents were billing for. It's just as the institution. So we can't um, fully answer the question, but it doesn't seem to be um, the former uh, in terms of these explanations. So in terms of secondary questions, um, what we're looking at are, are these other factors um, correlating with success rates? So um, if you have a higher level of training, meaning you're a senior resident, are you more likely to be successful? Um, in terms of prior experience, if you've done more of a single procedure, are you more likely to be successful? And then in terms of latency time, if you've gone a long period of time not having done a procedure, are you less likely to be successful? And we chose lumbar punctures um, for a couple of reasons. We do a lot of them as an institution. Um, residents generally are pretty good about logging them. Um, and there's not a whole lot of um, data in the literature um, that answers that question. So in terms of level of training, um, Intern versus senior resident. Um, there's not a huge difference, actually, which was a little bit surprising. Um, the national um, standard in terms of success rates is roughly about 75%. So what we were seeing is pretty comparable to that. Um, but in, between interns and seniors, not a huge difference. In terms of prior experience, so we broke it down. The x-axis is the number that you performed. And we broke it down based on every five. So if you've done anywhere from zero to five, you have about a five and an eight chance of, of successfully uh, getting a lumbar puncture. And we define that as less than two attempts with successful acquisition of CSF. Um, if you've done between five and 10, your success rate starts to go up, albeit not statistically significantly. Um, and if you've done more than 10, then your success rate continues to go up. Um, and we don't have the data to say kind of continuing on if you've done 15 to 20 or 20 to 25. Um, in terms of the latency time, this question of skill retention over time. So if it's been a long time since you've last done a lumbar puncture, you actually um, have a pretty steep drop off in your success rate. Um, so if it's been less than five months since you've done your last one, then you're somewhere around 75, 76% likely to um, adequately um, uh, um, obtain CSF. Whereas if it's been more than five months since your last one, that number drops off pretty significantly to 52%. And that, um, was statistically significant in terms of our analysis. Um, so to sum up our findings from this project, um, in terms of the secondary question that we were asking, there doesn't really seem to be a significant difference between interns and senior residents for lumbar punctures. Um, in terms of the question of um, the number performed, it's a hard question to answer. But um, as you saw, there's some difference between the first five and the subsequent numbers, um, but it's not yet statistically significant. Um, in terms of the skill retention or the question of latency period, that does seem to be statistically significant, um, suggesting some need for um, either retraining or um, something else to happen. Um, so as I mentioned, there's not a whole lot of data uh, to compare to um, in terms of answering these questions of competency with lumbar puncture. Um, there is some data with regards to a couple of other things, which we'll talk about. Um, the first one being intubation. So this is a study that came out of Switzerland um, about 15 or so years ago. 
Um, and they were trying to get at this question of the learning curve in terms of uh, intubations. So your x-axis is the number performed, um, and your y-axis is your success rate. And the goal of this was to determine kind of the magic number. What's the minimum number of intubations that you need in order to be proficient in it? And the way they defined proficiency was a 90% success rate um, on the first try. So as you can see here, um, you probably don't want to be the person being intubated among the first 10 attempts. <laughs> so the residents have about a 40% success rate on those first 10 attempts. By 20, that no by 20 attempts, that number is in the 60s. Um, and they concluded that 60 was the number of intubations needed um, in order to really adequately train them in terms of intubations. Um, in this study, they excluded all difficult airways, so it was just running on normal airways. In terms of neonatal intubation, to kind of take this back into the pediatric realm, um, there was a study that came out of uh, UC San Diego um, about uh, 10 or so years ago. Um, and what it was looking at was how the numbers of intubations are dwindling over time. So we have this magic number of about 60, um, which has been established in the anesthesia literature. And they were looking at whether people even got to that number. And the answer, even going back to the mid-90s, was no. So. Um, Again, your x-axis is your graduating year here, and your y-axis is your number of intubations. So in the mid-90s, people, um, these are graduating pediatric residents, were doing on average about 35 or so intubations. Um, by 2002, and again, this is uh, 12 years ago now, residents were only doing about 15 intubations by graduation. Um, and black there is the number performed, and y is the number successful, and as you can see, um, those success rates are not the best. So when they were in the mid-30s, they were about 50 or 60% successful. Um, and by 2002, when they were doing fewer, their success rates had dropped off pretty significantly to the point where they were only successful about a third of the time. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of other complicated procedures, this was an interesting study that came out of uh, Mass General um, a long time ago now, in the late 80s. Um, so this was a study of how many intubations it took to learn fiber optic laryngoscopy. Um, and they define things in kind of an interesting manner, which is why I bring up this study. So the way they define success was um, successful intubations on the first attempt within two minutes. Um, so the neonatologists in the room are thinking, two minutes, wow, that seems luxurious. <laughs> um, but that's how they define it in the adult literature. And so you'll see very different numbers in terms of thinking about these different procedures. Um, so not all of them are fully extrapolatable to pediatrics. Um, the other interesting thing that came out of this study was they showed the individual learning curves. And again, similar to the Swiss study, um, each individual is different and learns at a fairly different rate. So resident four, which is in the bottom right corner there, um, you can see some intubations that go on for eight or nine minutes. And again, that seems very, very luxurious. Um, and resident two, but after those first couple intubations, really seems to get it. So you'll see, um, that number really drop off and seems to be pretty consistently between one and two minutes after that. Whereas residents two and three seem to take a little bit longer and seem um, kind of even after the 10th intubation to be more around that two minute mark. Um, the other question that we're bringing up is this question of um, once you learn something, how well are these skills retained? Um, because one of the issues in pediatric residency is you can go a long period of time in between doing procedures. So if you spend half a year outside critical care units, you may never do any of these procedures during that period of time. So this is a study that comes out of Denmark. Um, and what they were looking at 
was the um, residents, and those, that's the red line. You can kind of ignore the blue line. They just did experts for comparison. The red line is the residents. Um, when they trained them on a laparoscopic simulator um, over a period of 10 sessions, how long would those skills be retained for? Um, and they gave breaks of six and 12 months to see what sort of degradation of skills would happen over time. Um, so your x-axis here is your time in months, and your y-axis is your success rate. So after six months, which is in between that second circle, um, there's a break period and then another start of a red line. Um, so after six months, their skills don't degrade all the way back to baseline, but certainly they are different from where they were and below their optimal levels. And then after a 12-month break time, um, their skills degrade pretty much back to their baseline, so somewhere around a, a 50 or 60% uh, success rate on this. Um, and these residents were not doing laparoscopic skills in between, so it's a um, a kind of fair comparison. Um, in terms of pediatrics, bringing it back to pediatrics again, um, this is a study that came out of Italy um, somewhere um, around uh, five or 10 years ago. Um, and so this was looking at neonatal resuscitation um, program skill retention over time. Um, NRP right now is mandated to be renewed every two years, but they looked at over six years, or over six months rather, what would the drop off be in terms of skills? Um, so your x-axis is your time period. You have pre-test, post-test, and follow-up. And your y-axis is your um, ability to correctly either perform skills or answer questions. So um, they looked at this. The follow-up period is six months later, as I mentioned. And then um, the things that they were looking at were the initial steps of NRP, which is in black, um, the ability to perform bag mask ventilation, um, which is in the darker gray, the ability to do chest compressions, which is in the lighter gray, and then medications, which is in white. And what they saw was that although skills didn't degrade all the way back to baseline, there were some pretty significant differences um, in terms of the ability to both give chest compressions and to administer medications. And although they weren't statistically significant, there was certainly a drop off in terms of the, both the initial steps um, in terms of resuscitation and um, the ability to do bag mask ventilation. So the question comes up kind of where do we go from here? This all seems kind of depressing. Um, we don't work 120 hours a week anymore. We spend less time in the hospital. We spend more time doing documentation. Um, we're overall doing a lot less procedures, and there's a whole lot more ancillary staffing in the hospital that's putting in IVs and doing all these procedures. So I hate the term paradigm shift, but we kind of need to change the way that we go about teaching things. Um, so with limitations on hours, um, the question comes up, is it better to do a lot of learning in a small period of time, or is it better to spread the learning out um, over a longer period of time? So the kind of big in vogue thing right now is these weekend skills courses or boot camp type courses. Um, and the whole opposite way of looking at things is whether it's better to do these periodic simulations. Um, and then the question comes up, is there a whole different way of doing teaching that we're just not doing right now? Um, and there's a lot of studies that have come out of athletics, music, kind of other realms that we don't necessarily think about. Um, and there are some interesting things that have come out of that. So we'll start by talking about this idea of kind of massed versus distributed learning, um, with massed learning being kind of learning a lot at once and distributed learning being learning a kind of chunked amount over a shorter or over a longer period of time. So this is a study that came out of the golf literature. I didn't know there was such a thing before I started this. Um, and the question was, if you want to learn putting, is it better to do a whole lot of putting in one day? And 240 putts is a lot of putts. 
Um, or is it better to do fewer putts but over a longer period of time? And what they looked at was they tested people immediately after they learned how to do it a week later and then a month later. Um, so after a day, it doesn't really matter whether you've done it all in one day or whether you've done it um, over a longer period of time. At a week, if you learned it all in one fell swoop, you start to show some degradation in terms of your skills. And then at a month, you start to see a fairly significant drop off in terms of um, your ability to remember how to putt. Um, and the idea behind this is this idea of reactive impedance, which essentially is a theory that people get fatigued, people get bored. Um, if you do a lot at once, it doesn't necessarily um, help you to retain your skills. The other thing is that rest helps you to overcome this, and it helps you to as well consolidate the learning that you do. Um, so a group from Canada actually took this idea of distributed learning and see whether it would help their surgical residents learn how to do microsurgery. So this is a study that came out about eight years ago and it asked this question. So it asked if you did kind of one four-hour block on one day, whether it would be equivalent or worse than doing one hour a week for four weeks. So they learned essentially how to do microsurgery on a model. And they also asked the interesting question, is this clinically applicable? And the way that they asked that was they had them do an anastomosis on a small turkey thigh artery. So this is an incredibly busy graph, and I'll kind of walk you through it. So the x-axis is the time period. So you have a pretest, a post-test, a retention test, which is one month later, and then a transfer of skills, which is how they did on the turkey artery. Um, and then they measured it in four different ways. So there was a global reading, um, a checklist assessment, a final product analysis, and then an overall competency rating. So um, the post-test, which is the second column, shows not a whole lot of significant difference in terms of how the groups are doing. So the white is distributed learning, and the gray is uh, mass learning. Um, in terms of the retention test, which happens one month later, um, you start to see some significant differences. So in terms of the global readings, in terms of their competency readings, um, the distributed learning group seems to do significantly better. And then the interesting thing is they're trying to make it clinically applicable. So they did the transfer of skills. And in terms of every measure that they did, the folks that learned via distributed learning um, seemed to do significantly better. So we talk a lot about simulation um, and whether it's clinically applicable or not. Um, when you learn a complex task, the way that we learn it is we break it down into really discrete tasks. And um, the interesting thing is that medicine is one of the few, maybe only realms where people practice pretty much in real time on real patients. If you think about all their professions, musicians, athletes, chess masters, they all train pretty much by themselves or with coaches to prepare themselves for the real thing. Um, to take that analogy one step further, I don't think that Derek Jeter said that he watched baseball and subsequently was ready to step into the batter's box at Yankee Stadium for his first at bat. <laughs> so simulation, I think, certainly um, from a theoretical standpoint, seems to um, alleviate a lot of the concerns that we have and allows you to practice um, very specific things uh, without being worried about patient safety. Um, it also allows for a very standardized assessment of how people are doing. Um, so this is a study that came out of Cincinnati Children's um, a couple of years ago. And what it was looking at was trying to use um, the simulated mannequin to measure 
how, how um, their residents were doing in terms of their lumbar puncture skills. So they would videotape the residents while they were doing the procedure, um, and then they would go back and look at it with a checklist um, to see whether, if they're looking at individual discrete skills, whether it would correlate with people that were more successful versus people that were not. So this is the um, checklist that they used. Um, and I think most people would acknowledge that most of these things make sense. So acknowledging the need for local anesthesia, feeling your landmarks both before and after you clean, using the right size needle, um, inserting it in the correct space in three dimensions, um, avoiding the spinous process, um, making sure that you are completely removing the stylet. Um, interestingly, so this was a study of 32 interns, um, many of whom had prior LP experience, and only 11 out of 32 were able to obtain CSF on the model that they used here. Um, and what they also showed was that the people that were able to obtain CSF were more likely to complete more of these checklist items. Um, so the question came up, was it just a bad model? Was it a poor kind of proxy for what they were trying to do? Um, so they had um, both emergency medicine fellows and faculty do it. And the answer was that fellows and faculty had success rates that were pretty much comparable to the national average. So they um, thought that their um, ability to say that this model was an adequate proxy seemed to be there. Um, so again, using the simulated assessment, a lot of papers, including some of the ones that I've talked about before, in addition to the Cincinnati children ones, have started to use this checklist assessment when judging proficiency in terms of um, how residents do with their procedures. And these checklists do seem to correlate pretty well. Um, the other interesting thing that came out of the Cincinnati children's study was it helps to uncommon some common mistakes that learners are making. So the two most common mistakes was um, probably things that you would guess. So, um, being able to avoid the spinous process was one. But the other interesting one was that um, a lot of residents were not completely removing the um, stylet from the needle. Um, and what they showed was, um, one of the other things that they did during that study was if people were unsuccessful, they had them leave in the needle where they were. Um, and just removing the stylet, a lot of them were actually in the correct space and they just didn't know it. So, Another thing that's come up over the past couple of years is this idea of deliberate practice. Um, and it's a concept that was written up in the early 90s by a, a Florida State psychologist named Anders Ericsson. Um, and it's been really popularized um, because it appeared in the book uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, this whole concept of 10,000 hours being the number of hours you need um, in order to be an expert in something. Um, going back to the original study, though, uh, Ericsson makes some interesting remarks. And a couple of them are that just being committed to practice is not enough, and just putting in long hours of practice are not enough. Um, the idea behind this whole thing is finding out where you're struggling in terms of what you're trying to do, and then coming up with ways to overcome those specific weaknesses. And it sounds really simple, um, but it's something that a lot of people avoid. Um, we like doing things that we're good at, and we don't like doing things that we're not good at. Um, and that makes us a little bit complacent sometimes, because we don't want to kind of confront the things that we're not good at. Um, so people usually hit a level of competence where um, they seem pretty satisfied. You're pretty good at something, but you can always be better at it. Um, and picking the worst aspect of it is sometimes uncomfortable, but it's the whole idea of this um, deliberate practice theory. So um, a group at the University of Texas in Austin um, took this idea into account. So what they did um, was they videotaped these um, advanced piano students while they were practicing. 
um, a very difficult piece. Um, and then they ranked them in terms of their overall performance at the end. And what they found was there was not any relationship between the quality of their performance and the number of times people had um, practiced the piece or how long they'd practiced the piece. So people that had practiced the piece for 90, 100, 120 hours were not necessarily better than people that had practiced for only 30 hours. Um, the best people were the people that had practiced the parts where they were messing the piano piece up repeatedly. Um, so really, the kind of lesson that comes out of this is um, it's not necessarily how much practice, but the type of practice that you do that allows you to get better at something. So applying this to medicine, um, a group in Northwestern has really taken this to heart. And this was a study that came out of um, some internal medicine, um, an internal medicine journal about four years ago. So your x-axis is time period here, your y-axis is success rate. Um, and they were trying to really apply this concept of deliberate practice. Um, so what they would do is they would do a baseline skills assessment, which you see on the left here, where internal medicine residents, not necessarily very good before this practice session. Um, and then they only did a four-hour session using this concept of deliberate practice, where they would be videotaped while they were doing it. Um, they would subsequently be coached on how they were doing, and they would be forced to kind of confront the parts of the procedure that they were getting wrong. Um, afterwards, they would do a post-test. Um, and this isn't necessarily reflective, the second column there, of immediate post-test. So um, they would do the post-test, and if they still were not getting things right, again, it was videotaped, and they would go back and do further deliberate practice on the areas that they were getting wrong. So they would get a lot of coaching. Um, and then, as you can see, um, after the kind of um, coaching that they got, they got very good at it. But the really interesting thing was that they followed them over six and 12 months. Um, and what they showed was that these skills are still very well retained after that period of time. So at six months, they were somewhere around 85% um, of uh, people still had the ability to adequately um, complete this 27 item checklist um, in order to put in central lines. And even at 12 months, they were still very, very good at it. Um, and more importantly, they actually um, tried to get as much data from the clinical realm um, as they could. Because the question always comes up, these are simulator models. Is it transferable to actual clinical practice? Um, and what they showed was that for residents that completed this course, they had higher success rates, lower complication rates, fewer attempts required in order to adequately put in central lines. So to sum up a lot of this data, um, procedure logs maybe rep represent a piece of the puzzle, but they're not really a good proxy in terms of defining clinical competence. Um, the future seems to be in simulation um, and using simulation as both um, a teaching and assessment tool um, to help define competence. And then this concept of deliberate practice is something that's becoming more and more um, uh, an item of um, interest in terms of developing skills um, and retaining them as well. Um, so in terms of this concept of the learning curve, um, there's a couple of different models that have come um, into popularity um, recently. But the important thing to remember is that every individual has their own learning curve and has their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, this one on the left here is one that's really, I think, come into popularity. So starting at this kind of level of unconscious and incompetent, where you really have no idea what you're doing, and you also don't know that you don't know what you're doing. So that would be like me performing that first lumbar puncture, where I really didn't have an idea of what I was doing, and 
I was constantly looking for prompts and really didn't have that kind of motor skills checklist in my mind. Um, when you advance from there, when you start to kind of understand um, a little bit more, you move to this level of conscious but still incompetent. So you know there's a lot that you don't know, um, and you start to kind of take steps to help you um, figure things out. Um, from there, you move into this level of conscious competence where you can do it. It still requires a fair amount of effort, um, a fair amount of concentration, and you have that kind of motor skill checklist in the front of your mind as you're going through the procedure. Um, and from there, what you kind of reach as the pinnacle is this uh, level of unconscious competence. So it's pretty much second nature. You don't have to think about it. Um, and the interesting debate that's going on in the literature right now is whether the conscious competent or the unconscious competent is the better teacher. Because sometimes people for whom a procedure is second nature have a hard time expressing um, that skill to other people and have a hard time kind of um, going through that um, checklist of skills in their mind. So thank you all for listening. And I'm happy to take questions at this point. So in a number of these studies, um, the requirement was that you had read how to do the procedure beforehand, and then you would watch a video either performed by um, an expert at that site or um, the New England Journal of Medicine videos in clinical medicine um, on how to do the procedure. So yeah, there was some level of preparation that was required prior to starting all of these skills courses. And has, have any of the studies that you've looked at tried to separate out early success versus lack of success based on the early preparation, self-preparation of the learner? The answer to that is no. So they tried to standardize the teaching as much as they could, and they're not really, uh, it wasn't a question that they were asking, which is certainly interesting. Um, so I have a question for all of it myself. In your first um, look with the log keeping, um, 
it's been shown a number of times with self-reporting that you may list your number of attempts, even in procedure notes. Like I see some procedure notes all the time, three attempts, and I'm like, I was there, there were eight. So <laughs> it would be really hard to measure success and compare it to other outcomes when it's hard for someone. And it's not even like they're, they're just they're in denial as opposed to lying. Um, so I don't know if you have any way of checking that. Do you have anyone else sort of uh, confirm that that success was a success or that they actually did it? Yeah, the answer is no. I mean, we were replying, we were very much depending on um, voluntary admission, so to speak. So yeah, it, it's it's definitely a problem. With I agree with you with voluntary data. And the other, um, but I'll just do one more. The other question, <laughs> um, regarding the modes of learning, yeah. um, the model for airway skills in pediatric critical care is lots of upfront learning, but then with the distributive learning afterwards. And I'm wondering if that's the, the model that should be used, because you start with safe, healthy, uh, less stressful kids, and then you, when you get the skills in that concentrated period, then you go ahead and distribute it over years with sicker, more complicated kids. And that seems to really cement the skill. And I'm wondering if there's any studies on the combination of concentrated with distributed. Yeah, so going back to that Danish study that I showed in the middle, where they were teaching on a, a laparoscopic simulator, mm -hmm. there was a lot of learning up front, and then um, a second period of a little bit of, like one or two sessions of um, distributed learning during that period. So. What that study showed was essentially that it took somewhere between six and 18 months for those skills to degrade. So it seems to be a little bit more robust than just that initial. Yeah. Um, Mike, that was an excellent presentation. Thank you very much. I am curious if this has been translated into Dr. Nett and myself. We're attendings. We're lifelong learners, correct? We're still trying to learn new skills. If there is a new chest tube procedure that's brand new and revolutionary, how does Dr. Nett learn it? And I'll be honest, I'm biased right now. I'm trying to learn two new procedures right now, and I'm really struggling with how to gain my confidence, prove my confidence, and be comfortable then teaching it to others. So has this translated either in the medical literature or the surgical literature to those of us who continue to be lifelong learners? Yeah, I mean, it's a hard question because, again, it's, it's asking, there's a lot of residents and fellows doing these procedures, and it's often hard to ask your superiors to submit to, um, to these questions. Um, the only study that really looked at that is, is um, um, going back to that Danish study. Uh, again, it was kind of experts who were being trained on this laparoscopic simulator. Um, but it, there's not a lot of data on it to, to answer your question. Thanks, Mike. Nice talk. Uh, I guess my question is about the time investment that it takes to practice all of these procedures to learn them up front, which you showed, and then the fact that if you're not using them on a day-to-day -day basis, those skills will degrade, even skills such as NRP or PALS. So these procedures like central line placement, intubation, chest tubes, does it make sense for residencies to invest time teaching pediatric residents these skills one, if they're not going to use it, and two, with work hours, it's going to compete for other learning. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question, and it's something that's come up a lot as to whether all residents need this training or just residents going into emergency medicine, critical care, kind of things where they would be using it. Um, there's not a whole lot of consensus on it right now, um, but it is a huge time, as, we, as you mentioned, um, have a lot of limitations in terms of training time. 
It's tough because it is the fun stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, thanks for an excellent presentation. I had uh, two questions and comments. Just in time training, I've since I've heard read some papers on this concept of just in time training, where if you have somebody practice on a mannequin or a simulator just before they do the actual procedure, it tends to increase their success rate. I don't know if you came across any articles on that. The second thing is, <clears throat> I think the procedural skills of attendance is a big black box, and there's a lot there if you open the box and look into it. I think the uh, skill levels of attendings is variable, and uh, there are data to show that, especially for intubation, only 5% of all intubations done in NICUs are done by attendings. And attendings can go for a year or two without even doing a single intubation in NICUs. So I wonder how they maintain their skills. And in that regard, there was a paper by John Berkmeyer and colleagues from Ann Arbor. They asked, uh, yeah, he used to be here at TDI. They asked surgeons to videotape their operative procedures for bariatric surgery, and they used a checklist to rank the procedural skill, compared it to a database of complications, and there was a spread of quality of the procedure and the surgeons that had the worst technique had a higher rate of complications. And these were attending surgeons. So I think we really need to study skill levels of attending physicians. And you can't assume that once you finish training, you reach a plateau and stay there. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And uh, Atul Gawani just read an article in The New Yorker about this idea of coaching in terms yeah. of both fellows and attendings. Um, so it's definitely something that's kind of right for doing research. Um, but I don't know, as you mentioned, I don't know if there's a lot of answers on it. Yeah. In terms of the just-in-time training, um, a lot of it is, um, as you mentioned, kind of success rates immediately after doing it. Um, there's not a whole lot of data about retention of that over time. Um, and again, if you're doing an emergent procedure, sometimes you don't necessarily have time to, to be practicing on a mannequin first. I just have just kind of a comment and a question. Um, you pointed out that we don't necessarily get better at doing things just by doing them over and over again. And in fact, we have to be observed and find out what we're not doing well to improve. The way that our training is set up currently is that we do something for a while. And then once we're competent, we just go off and keep doing it. And we're not always observed to be doing it. Did you find programs that have sort of peer-to-peer -peer evaluations, even of people who are deemed competent, to continue to monitor what, what pieces we might not be doing well at? Yeah, I mean, that's the big question as to whether we need kind of interval re-evaluation of people's skills. And it's, it's a great question. And there are not a lot of programs in the country that do it. Um, Northwestern did it more for the purpose of this study than for anything else. I don't think they routinely do it. Um, so it's a great question. Um, I think that um, related to all the comments about um, people who are already in practice and sort of Sam's questions about even if you're a PR3 but not in practice yet, I think that there's um, clear evidence about um, degradation of skills, what you observed with um, if you haven't done it in a while um, kind of things, and the, the need for ongoing coaching even once you've reached um, a really high level of performance. Um, and so um, that's something that I think would be wonderful for our faculty. Um, it's something that you know I've expressed interest in for a long time. Um, you know, I, I think that the more that we can have other people watch us, we can learn 
from what our colleagues are doing. Um, and we can also um, have the opportunity to share with them um, the, um, the things that we have to do. The challenge is time, right? <laughs> how, do you, how do you find the time to do those things? But I think they're important for the areas that, um, that we all want to continue to better ourselves in. And so that goes along with my other sort of comment question, um, which goes back to the comment about time, Omar's comment about time. Um, this process it has great evidence behind it, um, the process of um, deliberate practice and expertise development. And it's incredibly time consuming. Um, and there's absolutely no way that it's um, feasible in our current training model, or really any training model. We would be in residency for like 12 years um, if we were going to do this for all of the different skills. And so that's one of the reasons that, to me, it's really important to do exactly what Mike said is you need to figure out what you need to practice the most, and you really need to practice that thing. Um, you need to do what Omar said and figure out what you don't need to practice um, and take that off the table. Um, and I think that that's one of the, the areas, um, like when you were talking about um, sort of the future of medical education, which I think you summarized actually quite nicely for <laughs> a period of time, um, is thinking about how we go about doing that um, for ourselves in practice, um, and particularly for residents and developing their skills. So Mike, I wondered if you had any thoughts about how we, particularly in our training program, can do a better job with guiding people toward practicing the things that they really need to practice. Yeah, I, it, it's a complicated question. Um, and it, <laughs> it, it really depends on kind of people's self-awareness of what they want to do. Um, because a lot of skills, uh, a lot of procedural attempts you get as an intern. So again, it's kind of figuring out what you want to do and then um, kind of um, from there um, guiding people in the right direction as to what procedures they need. And that depends, um, I think, on the faculty as well, kind of figuring out um, what skills they feel like um, people need to hone. Um, so for critical care, for example, figuring out exactly um, what people think that they need. And it may be more IVs, it may be more um, central land opportunities, it may be those kind of things. And um, that may involve spending more elective time with other services if, if more opportunities are available. So I spent time with anesthesia, for example, and I think it was a valuable experience. Um, and it may be doing more things like that. So even even David Ortiz as a leading coach and an expert uh, practitioner, see how I balanced your Derek degree. <laughs> Michael was able to make it through his five, 30 years here with friends, even though he's a diehard. Yeah, he tests to his ability as much as he can. So hopefully we see everyone upstairs fifth floor in the in the rotunda right now. Thank you.